Well, we'll invite our ushers to come forward this morning. And again, thank you for your faithfulness, giving to the Lord, not only your time and your talents, but also your treasure as well. And maybe the most important thing is we love those white communication cards that you get each week so that we can uh, continue to pray with you and for you and then praise the Lord for his faithfulness and answered prayer. Aren't you glad that we have a God that answers prayer? Amen. He is so faithful. If you have a Bible handy, and I pray that you do, if you don't and you would like one, all you have to do is raise your hand and let our ushers know, and they'll give you a copy of the uh, New King James Version. That's the translation that we use predominantly here at Calvary Chapel. We'll bless you with one. But uh, if you have a Bible, or you can also follow along on the screens on both sides of the sanctuary there. We're in uh, 1 John chapter 2 this morning. And uh, we're in a series called Joy-Filled Living because that's why John wrote this epistle for us, so that our joy could be made full. And uh, I titled this morning's message, Jesus, Our Defender, as we'll see in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. We'll read these together. And uh, as you find your place there, I'll invite you to stand to your feet. We will read this together this morning, and then we will uh, take a moment and pray. And then jump into this, and then uh, we will conclude our service with communion, which is we have an open time of communion, meaning that uh, there'll be those that will pass out the elements of communion to you, and you'll take the bread first and the cup second, thanking the Lord for allowing his body to be broken for us, as that bread represents his body, and that cup represents not only his blood that was shed on Calvary's cross, but it also represents the life that's in us. And one of the great joys we have of reminding you when you receive communion is that as you take that bread and that cup, you're reminded that Jesus lives in you. As Larry was sharing earlier, the greatest joy we have is is not just the fact that we're saved, but it's that we can know God and we can know him on a day-to-day basis. And may you draw close to him today as I know it's his desire to draw close to you. We'll read uh, verses 1 and 2 of John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, and then, uh, like I said, we'll pray, and we will get going here this morning. John writes this, my little children, and you can do that when you're about 100 years old. Everybody's a little child, aren't they, to you? It says, these things I write to you so that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the key here is the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And let's take a moment and pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the privilege that you give us to study it together. May, Lord, you minister to our hearts and our minds, and may it transform us. Uh, Again, as we leave this place, may we leave a different people than how we came in. And we know we can't accomplish that on our own. It's only by the work of your Holy Spirit in us. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you to search us, Lord, to transform us and to cause us to become everything that you want us to be for the glory of God. We pray these things today in the wonderful name of Jesus. And again, all those who agreed said amen. Amen. You can be seated. So, you know, as we started this this series, just to kind of bring it back up to speed here a couple weeks ago, we discovered there was four reasons why John had written his epistle. Number one was, as I shared, that our joy may be made full there in verse 4 of chapter 1. He says, these things I write to you that your joy may be full. That's what he wants. That's what I want, is your joy to be full in Jesus. Uh, the second reason that he says he writes this is what we just read here this morning in 1 John 2, 1, that we may not sin. That's the second reason that he writes this epistle. He says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. 
sin, okay? And it says, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The third reason he said that he, he writes this epistle for us is to protect us from deception. If you recall there in 1 John 2, 26, it says, these things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. Remember, I shared with you the Gnostics who believed that Jesus didn't uh, come in the flesh, uh, that he was only a spiritual being. John is refuting that with his testimony that uh, if you go back and read uh, the Gospel of John and realize that what John was saying was that not only did God come in the flesh, but they got to touch him. They got to enjoy his presence. And again, anyone who would tell you otherwise, and we know that's still true today. Gnosticism is just as prevalent today as it was a, you know, a couple hundred years after Jesus' death burial and resurrection. We have the Jehovah Witness who will knock on your door that could be considered the modern day Gnostics or, or the Mormons themselves that don't believe that Jesus Christ, God's son, came in the flesh. And that's exactly what John is refuting here. And then maybe for the most of us, the, the thing that we appreciate the most about John's epistle, the fourth thing, the reason he says he wrote this book is found there in 1 John 5.13. He says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So John's saying, I write these things so that you know that you have eternal life. He wants us to be secure in our eternal uh, salvation. It says, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So obviously God has taken great painstaking care and making a relationship with himself possible for us. And again, uh, I love is what we studied there in chapter one that, you know, and we gloss over this so much when we think about in verse, you know, nine, that uh, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. And what we see here in chapter two is really the description of what it is to be faithful and just. We saw that in chapter two here. There's two things that I want to point out to you before we receive communion here this morning that we find there in verses 1 and 2 in chapter 2. The first thing that we find and we, we read is that Jesus is our advocate. And it's the Greek word parakletos. And what I love about this is I've shared this with you numerous times when we study you know, the picture of what marriage is. If you recall in, in Genesis chapter 2, you know, God said it wasn't good for man to be alone. And so I'll make a, a helper, a paracleto, someone that would come alongside and would help him. God knew that uh, man would need that. But also in John 15, Jesus, speaking of the Holy Spirit, said that he would pray and ask the Father to send another in his name, the paracletos, the one who would come alongside and be our helper here. And yet we find that uh, Jesus is also our paracletos. That's what he says of him being our advocate here. Now we think about what is Jesus, again, coming alongside. That word, it means, uh, you could say, is an attorney. He's a defender. And you might ask yourself the question, you know, do I need an attorney? And the answer is resounding, yes, we need an attorney. And the reason why, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 tells us that Satan, who you could say then is the prosecutor of your life, because it says that he's the accuser of the brethren. Were you aware of that? You go back and read the book of Job and you see that, uh, again, what is Satan doing? It says he's going to and fro with the sons of God and he's accusing Job before God. And guess what? He's accusing, Satan is, you and I before the Father every time that you sin. So now that's up to you to determine how often is Satan accusing you before the very throne of God? Is it daily? Is it weekly? Is it monthly? Is it annually? Or 
has he taken up residence there? You know, I mean, that, only you can determine really what that is, but that isn't the point. The fact is that he's there accusing you before the very throne of God. And so therefore you need a defense. I need a defense attorney. And guess what? We have one. And that's praise the Lord for that. And why do we need an attorney? Well, the bottom line is we're guilty. And again, if you have a problem with that, you have to go back to chapter one. That he who says he has no sin makes God what? A liar. So the bottom line is we're all sinners. We don't like to say that. We definitely don't like to admit it. The, again, when we understand this, because most of us were raised to say things like this. If you offended uh, another member of your family, I have, I have two sisters and a brother. And when we would have little, you know, fights and spats and stuff as kids, my mom would always bring us together and she would say, you know, if it was me, she'd say, Michael, you need to tell Pat or, you know, Patrick is what she would call my brother or Susan or Beth. You need to say that you're sorry if you want to go out and play. And I would always say, you know, sorry. And then my mom would let me go out and play. And as I've shared with you, do you think I was sorry at all? No, absolutely not. But I said it because I said it because one, it kept me in control or in power. It wasn't, I wasn't humble about it. And it allowed me to do ultimately what I wanted to do. But the Bible teaches us that when we fail in sin, what we're called to do and still to this day, I know many Christians do not practice this, but we also don't enjoy the joy-filled living that Jesus desires that we do by having our conscience really cleared and being clean before God. Because when you go this way, the biblical way, and you confess it as sin, so that would mean this. I would come to you if I sinned against you, and I would say, I need you to forgive me. And now, usually if somebody says to you, I need you to forgive me, your response would be to them, well, what is it that I need to forgive you for? And that's the part we don't like. See, I would much rather just come and say, hey, I messed up and I'm sorry. And then, are we good? But see, in doing that, it doesn't give you, the person who is offended, the opportunity to help me understand the, the depth or the degree of what that sin is. And so if I come to you and I say, hey, I need you to forgive me, normally you would say, well, what do I need to forgive you for? And then this is the hard part because then I have to say, what it is that I did and what my failure was. And when I do that, though, that's getting it out. That's that, you know, if you happen to live in Bakersfield and it's like 115 degrees outside and you're really hot and sweaty and you take a shower, you know that feeling of being refreshed? It's only for a few seconds, mind you. But when you first get out, there's just that, ah, you feel so clean. Well, that's what true forgiveness does. That's why the Bible says, if we confess our sin, and to confess our sin is to agree with God. It means, you know, we've, we've sung the song, you know, years ago. It was, and we'd, and we'd make it a prayer, right? God, break my heart for what? For what breaks yours? See, when we confess our sin, what we're really doing is we're saying, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. I'm agreeing with God. I'm, a, I'm coming on God's side of the equation. And I'm saying, God, you know, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against you know, this person. And so when we do that, that allows the person then to say, maybe they add more to it. They say, well, Mike, did you also know that you did this? And I go, wow, I didn't even know that. Because we do understand this. There's different types of sin, right? We know that there's the sin of commission that each and every one of us is guilty of. We are all worthy of death. We are all worthy of hell in this sanctuary today. And I know for some that's a difficult thing, but again, I can prove it to you because it's, you can do this on any continent in any language. It just simply asks the question, do we always do that which we know is right to do? And the answer is universal and the answer is the same for every person and it's no. So we are sinners by choice. 
And yet we're also sinners by omission. There's just things that God called us to do or things that we should have done, but we failed to do. And so when we come to a person and we say, I need you to forgive me, it gives them the opportunity to actually add in things maybe that were sins of omission as well, just things that I I failed to do. And then when we have the opportunity to make it right, it gives both people the, the joy of experiencing the forgiveness of God. Because again, remember this statement, and it's a very powerful yet profound statement, that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. And so one of the great joys of confession, and it's why God wants us to enjoy it and it leads to joy-filled living, is because everybody gets set free. Because if, if, again, most people would want to say that I'm a pretty forgiving person, but then you look around and you go, then why are there so many Christians who are bitter? How can you be forgiving and bitter? You can't. But you're only kidding yourself. Because when you're truly forgiving and forgiven, there's a cleansing that takes place. To, to pray with this little girl, you know, before the service, Jamie, in her heart, she knew that she was clean. You know, and tears start streaming down your face because you know that you know that you know that, you know, things are just right with God. My circumstances haven't changed. But in the twinkling of an eye, I've changed. Something's happened on the inside. Well, that's what it is to be born again. And so John is excited. He's, he loves his audience and he wants them to know these truths so that their joy would be made full. I want it to be the same for myself and for you today. So as you look at this, I mean, we need an attorney because, like I said, we're guilty. We are guilty of sin before God. And John knows it. And so he says, and if you sin, it, it, it could have easily been when you sin. But he said, if you sin, because what we're going to see later on, again, that would be a, a hopeless situation if the same degree of sin existed in your life from the moment that you got saved to the day that you either die or Jesus comes back to take us home. But there is a sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our life. The more you hang out with Jesus and the more you walk with him, guess what? The more you become like him. Now, will you ever become God? No. No, we would fallen short. Even if you became perfect from this moment on, you wouldn't be like God because God was what? Perfect completely for all eternity. And so we can't become God, but we can become more like him as we hang out with him and we take on his nature and he does that transforming work in our life. But that's only going to happen as you spend time in the word. You can worship God in song and singing and everything else, but if you're not in the word, that transformation will never take place. Oh, you might be what the world would say is a really nice guy or a really nice gal, and they would never ever see what God sees because see, God sees your heart. He sees what's the real you. I mean, there's the fake you, the fake me, the the one that we can put on for all the world to see. But then there's the one that God sees. And he sees what nobody else sees. And guess what? And he still loves us. That That is amazing when we take this totally to heart. And so, again, if you think about God being faithful and just, I mean, think about that. You know, how important that is that not to be glossed over because of the fact that Jesus Christ came in human flesh, that God was just. I mean, to be just, someone had to die because the Bible says the soul that sins shall surely die. Somebody had to pay the penalty for my sin and your sin. Either you're going to stand before God and pay the penalty yourself and you will, the consequence will be eternal separation from God in hell for all eternity. All eternity. 
in a, in a place where it says the, the weep, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth where the, the worm never dies and, and the stench, I mean, of hell is beyond anything that you could ever know in your, in your life. And to think that, you know, some people will say, well, I'll be there with my friends. You go, no, hell is complete darkness, isolation. And you won't even be able to, to see your hand in front of your face. And that's for eternity. And you go, and God doesn't want anybody to go there. That's why he makes it so bleak and so, so ugly. And, and so, you know, I mean, when you think about the fear that should grip our hearts when we think about eternal damnation, because God, it's not his desire that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And so he makes it as bad as it possibly can be as a deterrent for us so that we would choose the only way to experience eternal life, and that's through the sacrifice of his son, through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But I love the fact that, like I said, we have two, two advocates. We have the Holy Spirit, who in the sense pleads God's case to us, right? So he's in our life, he's working alongside of us and he's bringing conviction. Have you ever felt guilty? You know, it's okay for Christians to feel guilty. There, God wants us to feel guilty because guilt brings us to what? The realization that we've failed. Now, does he want us to feel shame? Well, you go, yes, he wants us to feel shame if, if the things that we're doing are shameful, but he also wants us to feel forgiveness. He wants us to know that we can do something about the guilt and the shame because the Bible tells us there's therefore what? No condemnation. There's no downward judgment. God has made a way of escape, but the Holy Spirit is still working in our lives as believers to bring us to a place of consciousness to know that we have violated the word of God. In doing so, that then that would bring repentance, which would be what? A broken heart. A broken heart before God that says, God, you know what? Break my heart again for what breaks yours. That we'd be in agreement with God. Do you, do you believe that sin breaks God's heart? You know how to put it in perspective? Think about sacrificing your only child, your one and only child for the sins of an ungrateful world. And to see what people act like and respond to when you give your son so that they could live and how they respond. You'd spend and I would spend most of our time crying because of simply the ingratitude of people with whom you died for. And so, yes, what, what should happen with sin? Because it's my sin and your sin. Remember Mel Gibson in the movie, you know, The Passion of the Christ, that one scene that he, he allowed himself to be in in that movie was that hand gripping the spike that they drove through Jesus, his, his body. And he said, well, why? And they said, because I wanted people to understand that it wasn't the sins of the Romans, it wasn't the sins of the Jews that killed Jesus, it was my sin, it was your sin. And that is an accurate portrait of what happened to Jesus when he went on the cross. It was my sin. It was your sin that placed him there. If nobody else ever existed on this planet, Jesus still would have had to die because of me and because of you. And if that doesn't break our heart with regard to sin, you go, I, I don't know what will. And so again, yes, does God want us to feel the weight and the implication of sin? Sin is the serious business of heaven. I can tell you that. And, and it's so important uh, to God. But we also have, like I said, Jesus is our other advocate. We have the Holy Spirit who's pleading God's case to us. Now we have Jesus pleading what? Our case to God. Thank God for that. Amen. That again, 24 hours a day, you got him. He's on retainer. And for some of us, he's, you know, a lot more. Let's just say that. Hebrews 4.15 
puts it like this. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. What I love about this is, again, Jesus came in the flesh is what it's saying. He's not a God that can't relate. He went through the same temptations, the same struggles, but the Bible says he did it without sin. He never failed one time, but he can relate. See, he, he knew what the escape was, and the escape for Jesus was the escape for me and you, is that he didn't rely on himself, but he trusted in the power of the Holy Spirit. He looked to the Father. The same things that you and I have the privilege to do. We can look to ourselves, we can look around, or we can look to God. We can rely on our own strength, or we can rely on the strength of God. It's there, it's available for us. And so, again, he wants us to understand, and John's writing, he's going, I want you to know. And he says, you know, and he's writing this with terms of endearment, you know, little children. He, he, he's writing this with love. He cares about us. He cares about what we understand and know and why it's so important to know what, it, what is advocacy. What is it to be an advocate and to know that you have an advocate with the Father? What is it to understand propitiation? And again, if you don't study doctrine and you don't take the time to study this out, you'll never have the peace to the fullest degree that God wants you to. Because yes, there's some complexities to it, but the more you dig into it, the more you understand it, the more you comprehend it, Jesus said, the truth you'll know and the truth will do what? It'll set you free. And it does. And, and again, and it's not something that's so heady. It becomes practical. You know, I always love when, you know, Pastor Chuck said, you know, the, the goal of Calvary Chapel, you know, and every Calvary Chapel that ever be planted is simply teach the Bible simply. Just let the Bible speak for itself. Yes, study what does the word mean. You don't have to take Greek and Hebrew. You can look it up and you can look in a dictionary and go, this is what the word means. And then understand it and grow in it. And again, as we do, it'll, it'll transform our life. But brokenness, I mean, I think about, you know, David. You know, again, when he confessed his sin. Remember, he sinned with Bathsheba. And it took almost a year before he actually repented of his sin. Nathan the prophet came to him and he confronted him with his sin. And then David explained what was going on in his life. It was as if when he wouldn't repent, when he wouldn't allow his heart to be broken for his sin, it says that he was literally dying on the inside. It was like he was suffering from what we might say is fibromyalgia. I mean, it says like every fiber, every fabric of his being was causing him pain. And if you're in that place today, and maybe they put a, a, a name to it and said, hey, you're suffering from fibromyalgia, but really in the truest sense, in your heart of hearts, you know that what it is is unrepented sin. What I'd encourage you to do today is take it to God. Agree with God. Get on the same side of God. To repent means to agree with God. Is to get on his side of the equation and say, God, I have sinned against you. I've, and it's not that I just sinned against other people, but I sinned against you, God. And then to confess it as such and allow him to cleanse you and wash you. That's what he says, right? In 1 John chapter 1, if I confess my sin, if I agree with God, if I get on his side of the equation, he's not going to go, oh, way to go. He's not going to judge me. He judged his son. That's where we come back to advocacy and propitiation. Again, knowing that he's just and he's faithful. If I confess my sin, he's faithful and just. says to forgive me my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Could you use a fresh start today? If you could, it's available. Just for the asking. All you have to do is bring it to Jesus and say, Lord, I, I need a fresh start. I need a cleansing. I need a washing today. And I agree because it's this that's caused it in my life and confess it as such. You know, in Psalm 51, and I, I want to read this to you, David says this in verse 1, he says, and he says, have mercy upon me, O God. Here's, here's a man 
that understands the brokenness of what sin does in our, in our lives. And why does God hate sin so much? You've got to ask yourself this question. Why does, is it just because he doesn't want us to have fun? So what, what is the, the, again, if I gave you a term for holiness, the word holiness, it gets so blown out of proportion. Holiness simply means whole, that you're complete, body, soul, and spirit. We have so many people today that are, that are struggling and suffering from mental illness, from, you know, spiritual brokenness, I mean, relational, whatever the thing is. But again, we are, we are a triune being ourselves. And, and we, we forget that so, so easily here. And yet David, again, he comes to this place where he agrees with God. He gets on this, the same side of the equation. He says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. It's like he's begging God, but you don't need to beg. He says, wash me thoroughly from my inequity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me against you, and this is important, against you and you only have I sinned. When you and I sin, we're not really sinning against other people or even ourselves. We're sinning against God and against a holy, righteous standard. And God hates sin because sin erodes holiness. You know, it's like it's been well said, you know, the Bible will keep you from sin and sin will keep you from the Bible. And so God knows this. John knows this. And so he's writing these things. He says, and so I'm writing these things to you so that you'll know. So if you sin, this is what he wants us to know today. It's what I want you to know. We do sin. We do fail in our relationship with God and one another. But what God is saying through John is he's going, but your relationship with God isn't terminated because of it. What I want you to know is that when you sin and when you fail, you have an advocate with the, with the Father. You have Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, he's the perfect attorney. So when it says that he's righteous, it's not like, you know, you hire Guido, you know, from Chicago, and he just pays the mayor, you know, or the police chief underneath the table, and you're as guilty as sin, you know, and they just let you walk. Does that happen? Does it ever happen in America? Some of you are shaking your head, no. Uh, turn on the news. It happens every single day in this country, right? I mean, it's corrupt. The system's corrupt. But Jesus is the righteous one. So when he pleads your case before God, what is he doing? Is he just glossing over your sin? Is he going, oh, you know, Mike, oh, he's perfect. No, he's doing what? He'd be like, you'd be sitting there in court, and he's going, uh, your honor, I just want you to know Mike's guilty of this and this. Oh, and by the way, your honor, there's charges that aren't even on here. That should be on here. Let me tell you about this. And he just starts throwing out charges. And you're going, wait a second. I, th th I thought I paid you. Well, you're not paying Jesus. You're not paying him anything. But he's our advocate. He's our attorney. And he's the righteous. And so what he's doing is he's putting all of your sin on the table before a righteous and holy God. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is what? Death. And so... So the father drops the, the gavel and he says, guilty. Guilty of what? Of sin. And then what does that sin cause? Death. And then this is the beauty of propitiation. Is that Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God. I'm not going to read through Psalm 51. You, know, you read through it yourself. But, he, but here's what God is after. See, he's after, again, is it our perfection? No. You know, what he's really after is our confession is our recognition that we cannot live this life apart from him. 
Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Without him, you can't do anything that would please God. Because our works, the Old Testament declares, would be what? They're like a filthy rag. They're, 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 they're nothing to God. Psalm 51.17, though, it says this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. The Apostle Paul, he understood what brokenness was. He said of himself in Romans 7, 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you think Paul was grieved over his own sin? Absolutely. See, when we clear our mind and our heart before God, we're set free. That, that's the beauty of confession, getting on the side of God, agreeing with God about it. So when we repent, we agree with God. And when we do, we experience that sanctifying work of the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2.13 puts it like this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Man, talk about the efficiency of the blood of Christ. How effective it is. 1 John 1.7, we studied this a couple weeks ago. It says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, does what? Cleanses us from all sin. See, so important here. You know, it's not the absence of sin that marks our life as, as believers. It's the grieving over our sin that marks our life. That's what God is looking for, is that broken and contrite. It's not that we're walking around crying and weeping. over. It's inside. And it's allowing that to change us from the inside out. See, it was Jesus who, who, who said himself, you know, blessed are those who mourn, or happy are those who mourn, those that, who recognize that they are, are spiritually poverty-stricken individuals. When you recognize that, you go, what do I recognize? I need God. That, that's a good thing. Do you realize that, to recognize that you need God? The problem in this life is when people believe that they don't need God. That's the greatest lie. That's the lie of, of Eden, isn't it? That, hey, eat this fruit, and guess what? You'll be like God. You won't need him. And the world keeps eating from it every single day. And the church is under attack today to quit feeding on the word of God, on the lamb of God, and trusting and leaning on our own understanding. You know? And again, hopefully, you don't bite that apple. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, and 4, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those that agree with God, those that get on the side of God, they go, God, I want you to break my heart for what breaks yours. I want to understand in a more fuller way what Christ accomplished for me on the cross. I don't ever want to lose sight of the fact that it was his body broken for me, that it was his blood that was shed for me. When I lose sight of that, you lose sight of everything. That's why Paul said, and we preach the cross. We preach what? Christ what? Crucified. He didn't say resurrected. That was, the, that was the given. But we preach the cross because we preach the seriousness of sin. Because we're not hearing that in the church today. We're not hearing that in the world today. What we're hearing today is, you know, yes, God loves you. And, and we don't even want to bring up words like sin because that makes people feel bad. It's like not even politically correct any longer. And you go, I'm not here to offend you, but if that offends you, I'm okay with that. Because I would rather you be offended at the moment and take to heart the truth of God's word that it brings about a transformation in your life that saves your soul from hell than to say, well, just, you know, do your very best. And that's really all that matters. Because guess what? Everybody believes, and that's really what God wants from us. No, that's not. God, God's heart was broken over sin in this world. His heart was broken over the fact. Matter of fact, he couldn't even look on from the cross. 
when Jesus hung there dying, when he who knew no sin became sin for me and for you, says the Father turned away and a darkness came over the earth. That, that's how serious sin is to God. And John's going, but I want you to understand something. Sin is serious, but you got to know. Because if you don't know, what it's going to do is your sin is going to lead you away from God. And what God wants your sin to do is to lead you to a place where it breaks you, where you agree with God and God sets you free from your sin. Where you come to realize that he's your advocate, he's your attorney, and you need him because you're guilty. And he's there for you. And he's your propitiation. He satisfied the wrath of God that was against me and you. He paid the full price, which was death. Death was the only solution to the problem. And God sent his son into this world to die for me and you. That all who would believe, all who would receive him, would have the privilege, the right to become the children of God. Amen. To be a child of God, there, there's no greater joy that we can experience in this world. There's nothing this world has to offer you that can compare to your eternal salvation. Nothing. There's nothing that even comes remotely close. You, you recall the story of the two men who went up to the temple to pray, right? One was a Pharisee, one was a tax collector there in Luke 18. Uh, it says, and he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that's who I want to remind you, is don't trust in yourself, trust in Jesus, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess, and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as even raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying God be merciful to me a sinner I tell you Jesus said this man went down to his house justified rather than the other the Pharisee the religious person who came to church every single week faithful gave served did all these things he says for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted so what's he telling us confession is a remedy confession is good for the soul because it keeps us in that place of brokenness where we recognize and remember that God is faithful and that he is just. See, understand this about the, the word propitiation there. In the Greek language, it's the word helisterion, and it's translated mercy seat. So think about that. Jesus is our mercy seat. Remember in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, when God gave Moses the instructions to build the Ark of the Covenant? It was that wooden box made of acacia wood, and then the, the lid was covered in pure gold and had two cherubim on it, right? And it was in the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest could go there once a year on the Day of Atonement, and he would sprinkle blood, right, on that mercy seat. Now, God didn't meet the children of Israel in the box, right? Because in the box, it contained what? There were three items, the, the Aaron's rod that budded, the jar of manna, and the Ten Commandments. God doesn't meet anybody in the Ten Commandments, why was the Ten Commandments in the box? It was to demonstrate the children of Israel, they were not faithful to God. They didn't keep the commandments of God. And yet God maintained an opportunity and an ability for the children of Israel to have fellowship with him. And how did he do it? They met once a year where? At the mercy seat. The high priest would bring in what? The blood of a sacrifice, the blood of the lamb. And he'd pour that, that blood, sprinkle that blood on the altar. There, on the mercy seat there, and God would come down and he would visit. 
And, and what John is saying is Jesus is your mercy seat. Jesus, and again, this is why it's so important that we pray in the name of Jesus. We pray to Jesus. We pray everything about what Jesus has done. And you go, why? And you go, because he's our mercy seat. We come boldly before the throne of grace because of Jesus, right? We have no access to the Father at all except through who? Through Jesus. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father except by what? me but he wants us to know and that's why John is saying you got to understand what propitiation means because it means mercy seat do you need mercy today if you ever go to court don't ever ask the judge for justice okay don't ever make that mistake go well I want justice because if you get justice guess what you deserve hell okay anything above that would be a gift okay when you go to court always go Lord I, I judge I throw myself on the mercy of the court now, that's the best deal that you're ever going to get and that's what the mercy seat is, is a place where we can find mercy. Why? Because we have a merciful high priest. We have a, a God who loves us and cares about us. Now, he's just, though, and he had, to, he had to deal with sin, and he had to deal with it in the way that he said. And he said, again, the soul that sins shall die. Well, Jesus died for us. Now, did Jesus commit any sin? No, the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. So he took our place. He satisfied the wrath of God by taking my place and your place on the cross so that we could go free. Now, you might have heard this a million times. You go, but is, has it really set in? Has it impacted your life to the point that, that you're enjoying your salvation? Or is it really joy-filled living that's taking place? Are you experiencing sin less in your life because you're enjoying Jesus more? Have you realized that what this world has to offer doesn't compare to the glory that shall be revealed in you one day? Eye hasn't seen nor ear heard nor has it entered the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. Are you seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness knowing all these other things will be added unto you? Store up your treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. You go, is that the thing that's happen in your heart you go because all you have to do is you know look at your checkbook follow the money just like we say in government or business or anything else where your treasure is Jesus said what your heart be also God break our hearts for what breaks yours and I want to close with a couple things here one just to give you a definition of this propitiation for those of you that really want to understand the word here means this, the satisfaction of God's righteous wrath and holy indignation. Let me repeat that for you if you're a note taker. The satisfaction of God's righteous wrath and holy indignation. And like I said, it's one of these words that in scripture, you know, you go propitiation, you know, it could go in one ear and out the other. So let me leave you with a, a, an illustration here before we go today. It's one that uh, when I was the youth pastor, I remember the first time uh, I read this story. I mean, you talk about breaking your heart for what breaks yours, because I remember we had just had Bree, uh, and, and I remember what a miracle it was to, to have a baby. I mean, to what it was like to see her come into this world. I mean, there was, I, I wondered at the moment, is like, how could anybody ever be an atheist when you, and there is no such thing as an atheist, you know? in the truest sense, because God's placed it in our heart to know him. But people claim, because they just want to deny God, because they don't want to live under his rule or reign. But I, holding her in my hands, and I was going, God, what, what, the beauty of, of this, this miracle. And to think that she was our only child at that point. And 
To think that God so loved this world that he would give his only begotten son to die for sinners, sinners like me, like you. And then those sinners out there that, you know, the Charles Mansons of the world, the Unabombers and, you know, the Taliban, the, you know, I mean, you think of people and you go, wow, that God would give his own son. I go, man, I wouldn't give my daughter for anything, for anyone. I'd give my own life maybe, but I wouldn't give hers. And that, that's where understanding propitiation is so important to understand the magnitude of what God has done to save you and me. And that's why the business of sin is so serious, so serious, and that we don't take it lightly and that we should never take it lightly in our own life because of the price that was paid because of it. And I remember in this story, and it was like I said, and as I read it, it, it was so profound, and I want to share it with you as we go today. Let's prepare our hearts for receiving um, communion. I'll go ahead and invite, uh, not the guys that are going to pass out the elements. You guys can stay seated, but I'll invite the worship team to come up because they'll already be up here then. But um, this is a true story. It goes like this. John Griffith was in his early 20s. He was a newly married and, and he was full of optimism. Along with his lovely wife, he had been blessed with a beautiful baby. He was living the American dream. But then came 1929, most of you remember that, the great stock market crash, the shattering of the American economy that devastated John's dreams. The winds that hallowed through Oklahoma were strangely symbolic of the gale force that was sweeping away his hopes and dreams. And so brokenhearted, John packed up his few possessions and with his wife and his little son, he headed east in an old Ford Model A. They made their way to the edge of the mighty Mississippi River and they found a job tending one of those great railroad bridges there. Day after day, John would sit in the control room and direct the enormous gears of the immense bridge over the mighty river. He would look out wistfully as bulky barges and splendid ships glided gracefully under his elevated bridge. Each day he looked on sadly as those ships carried with him his shattered dreams and his visions of far-off places and exotic destinations. See, John had saved all of his money, invested it in the stock market, thinking that was the best place for it. He wanted to travel the world. He lost it all. It says it wasn't until 1937 that a new dream began to be birthed in John's heart. His young son was now eight years old and John had begun to catch a vision for a new life, a life in which Greg, his little son, would work shoulder to shoulder with him. The first day of this new life dawned and brought with it new hope and fresh purpose. Excitedly, they packed their lunches and they headed off towards this immersed bridge. Greg looked on wide-eyed with amazement as his dad pressed down on the huge lever that raised and lowered the vast bridge. As he watched, he thought that his father might surely be the greatest man alive. He marveled that his dad could single-handedly control the movements of such a stupendous structure. Before they knew it, noontime had arrived. John had elevated the bridge and allowed some of the scheduled ships to pass through. And then taking his son by his hand, they headed off towards lunch. As they ate, John and his son, in vivid detail, stories, and he told them about the marvelous destinations of the ships that glided below them. 
enveloped in a world of thought. He related story after story, his son hanging on his every word. Then suddenly in the midst of telling the tale about the time that the river had overflowed its banks, he and his son were startled back to reality by the shrieking whistle of a distant train. Looking at his watch in disbelief, John saw that it was already 107. Immediately he remembered that the bridge was still raised and that the Memphis Express would be by in just minutes. In the calmest tone he could muster, he instructed his son, stay put. Quickly he leaped to his feet, he jumped onto the catwalk. As the precious seconds flew by, he ran at full tilt to the street ladder leading up to the control house. Once in, he searched the river to make sure no ships were in sight, and then he, as he had been trained to do, he looked straight down beneath the bridge to make certain nothing was below. As his eyes moved downward, he saw something so horrifying that his heart froze in his chest. For there below him in the massive gearbox that housed the colossal gears that moved the gigantic bridge was his beloved son. Apparently Greg had tried to follow his dad but had fallen off the catwalk. Even now as he was wedged between the teeth of the two main cogs in the gearbox, although he appeared to be conscious, John could see that his son's leg was already uh, begun to bleed. Then an even more horrifying thought flashed through his mind. Lowering the bridge would mean killing the apple of his eye. Panicked, his mind probed in every direction, frantically searching for solutions. In his mind's eye, he saw himself grabbing a coiled rope, climbing down the ladder and running down the catwalk, securing the rope, sliding towards his son, pulling him back to safety. Then in an instant, he would move back down towards the control lever and thrust it down in time for the oncoming train. As soon as these thoughts appeared, he realized the futility of the plan. Instantly, he knew there would just not be enough time. Frustration began to beat on John's brow, terror written over every inch of his face. His mind darted here and there, vainly searching for yet another solution. He agonized in his mind, considered the 400 people that were moving inextricably closer and closer to the bridge. Soon the train would come roaring out of the trees with tremendous speed. But this was his son, his only son, his pride, his joy. He knew in a moment that there was only one thing that he could do. He knew he would have to do it. And so, burying his face under his left arm, he plunged down on the lever. The cries of his son were quickly drowned out by the relentless sound of the bridge as it ground slowly into position. With only seconds to spare, the Memphis Express, with its 400 passengers, roared out of the trees across the mighty bridge. John Griffith lifted his tear-stained face and he looked into the windows of the passing train. A businessman was reading the morning newspaper. A uniformed conductor was glancing nonchalantly as his large vest pocket watch. Ladies were already sipping their afternoon tea in the dining car. A small boy, looking strangely like his own, pushed a long, thin spoon into a large dish of ice cream. Many of the passengers seemed to be engaged in idle conversation or careless laughter. No one even looked his way. No one even caught a glance at the giant gearbox that housed the mangled remains of his hopes and his dreams. In anguish, he pounded the glass in the control room. He cried out, what's the matter with you people? Don't you know? Don't you care? Don't you know that I've sacrificed my son for you? What's wrong with you? No one answered. No one heard. No one even looked. Not one of them seemed to care. And then, as suddenly as it had happened, it was over. The train disappeared, moving rapidly across the bridge and over the horizon. You know, you think about that story. There's a true story. It's 
it's a tragedy. And so here's where it's unlike scripture. See, God sending his son into the world wasn't a tragedy. It was by God's design. It wasn't an accident. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay my life down that I can take it up again. The good news in this story for John and for his son is that as believers, they would see each other again one day. Jesus rose three days later from the grave. But to make this more of a truer story, this is what would have had to happen. When John saw, you know, the train coming, that he'd look down and say that that gearbox, you know, uh, was stuck. And you can imagine if that gearbox was, was, was stuck there. And he looks at his son and he says, son, the only way that I can get the, the bridge to come down is it's going to have to be lubricated. And the only way that it can be lubricated is if you climb down that ladder and, and place yourself between cog number one and cog number two. And I lower that bridge. And as it crushes your body, that your blood becomes the very lubricant that allows that bridge to drop into place. That would have made it more real as to what truly transpired when God sent his son into this world. It's beyond really human comprehension, the love of God. If you're a parent, you understand that. To think that you would willfully sacrifice your life for sinners, for people who don't appreciate, who take it for granted, who think nothing of sin, living in opposition you know, to your great sacrifice each and every day. And so it's why communion is so important because it brings us back to the reality that, yeah, that's just, you know, a cracker. That's just a cup. But Jesus said, as often as you take this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim what? The Lord's death. That he died for you. He died because of you. He died for me. He died because of me. That we would, again, make that not, not just a time of mourning in the sense, but a time of celebration, that he did it in love. See, remember, the good news is three days later, he what? He rose again. The price was paid in full. And because of that, because Jesus lives, the good news of the gospel today is if we'll confess him as Savior and Lord and we'll confess our sins and turn from our sins and turn to God and walk with him, we'll live too. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why John stresses this. He goes, you know what? Yes, if you sin... You have an advocate. You've got somebody who's on your side. Jesus isn't against you. He's for you. You have, as your advocate, he's also your propitiation. He himself satisfied the wrath of God that was against you. You find now your life in him. And that's what we do then the rest of our life. And so this, again, isn't a day to beat ourselves up. It's a day to look within. And if we're living in sin, is to call it what it is and confess it as such and turn from it and agree with God and allow him to wash you and cleanse you today. If you wanna walk out of here cleansed today, it's your privilege. If you wanna walk out of here feeling dirty, just keep it inside just another day until like David, he went a whole year. You, you might've gone years and years and years, but I just want you to know he's here today and Jesus will set you free. And that's what we celebrate, amen? And so that's what we'll do as we receive communion. So I'll invite those as I'll begin to pray, they'll come forward. And uh, again, it's an open time of communion, so you'll receive the communion while we're worshiping, and you can take that whenever you feel led. Just praise the Lord, thank him, pray to him. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the privilege you give us.